Well, those of you who are visiting, apologize, we're in the end of a series. So you'll have to go back and get the app and listen to the first uh, three messages in our, our series we're leading up to Resurrection Sunday. We've been in a series called Behold the Lamb, because Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God throughout Scripture. And so you can open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the chair, under the chair in front of you. If not, you can look around and grab one. But Revelation chapter 5, we'll be getting into that in a second. This past week, I remember a few years ago, I heard a story of a house burglar. It was his profession. He broke into people's houses and stole things. And he noticed, somehow he came across information that this one family was going to be out of town. And uh, he got his tools out. And that evening, in the darkness of night, he crept up to the door on the side of the house and he picked the lock. And he went into the house, which was dark. And knowing that there was no one home, so he thought, he yelled out, Is anybody home? And much to his surprise, a reply came back. And the reply said, I see you, and Jesus sees you. Oh, he was just frightened. He didn't know what to do. And he's fumbling with his flashlight, trying to turn it on. And once again, he said, who is that? I see you, and Jesus sees you. Terrified, he took the light, and he... shined it in the direction of this voice. And to his amazement, there was a parrot (laughs) in a cage. I see you. Jesus sees you. Well, the guy just started cracking up, right? He thought that was hilarious. And so he went over and he flipped the light on and he turned around to look at the bird one more time. And that's when he saw him. A huge ferocious German shepherd seated seated at the seat of the parrot's cage. And they connected eyes, and then he heard the parrot say, Sick him, Jesus! (laughs) Now, that's kind of a funny story, hopefully, but today, because of what happened 2,000 years ago, Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ was raised from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. Because of that, I can say with great, great confidence, Jesus sees you. He sees you. He knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He sees everything you've done. He sees everything you haven't done. But trust me, he sees you. But the good thing is, the good news is this. He's not a mean dog. (laughs) He's not a ferocious German shepherd. He's, the Bible describes him as a worthy lamb. A worthy lamb. I stand before you this morning and I tell you, I'm not here to sick Jesus on you. (laughs) That's not what I'm here for. That's not why we gather here. Jesus Christ is not a dog. He's a lamb. He's a worthy lamb 
who is worthy, by the way, of our worship. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our attention. This Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our discipleship. He's worthy of our love. He is worthy of our life. And we put all those things together, and that's what you call worship. Worship is not singing a song. Worship is not sitting in a seat through a service, listening to a sermon. Those could be elements of worship. Those could be used for worship. I mean, there are many people across our nation, around the world today, who are sitting in services just like this one, surrounded by worship. But they themselves will not participate, sadly, because they have not given all that they are to all that Christ is. See, that's what worship is. The Bible says that he is worthy. Christ is worthy, not just of an hour of your life, not just an hour of your week, not just a day, a year. He is worthy of everything you are. And that's what worship is. Worship is giving all that I am to all that he is. And trust me, he is worthy of that. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The question is why? Why is Jesus worthy? Why is Jesus worthy of every moment of every day of this life and the life to come, by the way? What makes him worthy? Why is he worthy of all worship? Well, Revelation chapter 5 gives us a picture of why this is true. And I hope in the time that we share here this morning to convey a sense of what this passage means for all of us. Why Jesus Christ is so worthy of our worship. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. This was written by the Apostle John through direct revelation of God. And I would ask that you please stand in honor of the Word of God as I read the infallible, inerrant, holy Word of God. And if you don't get anything else, this is the most important part of anything I'm going to say this morning. If you forget everything else I say, I'm fine with that. Focus on what we're going to read. Because this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John says, verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would give us understanding and bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I appreciate that. We've been in this series Behold the Lamb, and we've gone from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And we've been looking at the different parts and the different places of the Bible that it describes and it depicts Jesus as the Lamb of God. We started all the way back in Genesis 22, and we saw that Jesus is represented as a substitutionary Lamb. Remember, Abraham was going to slay his son, and yet a substitute was provided. It gave us a picture of the substitute that Christ was for us on the cross. Secondly, we looked in Exodus chapter 12 and we talked about the Passover lamb. Where all the plagues were coming into Egypt. And the last plague, the tenth plague, was that the death angel would come and kill all the firstborn. And the Israel, the Jews, were to kill a year-old lamb that they kept in their house for four days. They were to slay it and put the blood over the door. And if they did that, the death angel, the one that was wiping out all these firstborn from God as judgment, would pass over them. And then Good Friday, we looked at John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist speaks of Christ as the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? who takes away the sin of the world. And now we come to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And by the way, it's the book of Revelation, singular. I hear some of you saying, oh, you know, I was reading the book of Revelations. It's not, it's not, it's, a, it's one revelation from God to John. Just a little Bible 101 there for you. You can take that home with you. But Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, 28 times. More times in the book of Revelation than all the rest of the Bible put together, by the way. 
In Revelation 5, he is called the worthy lamb. He's worthy of our worship now and forevermore. That's what this whole thing is about. Now, in order to understand, we have to understand the setting of what we just read. First of all, it's written in the book of Revelation. So a lot of things, a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism is being used. So we want to be, have proper understanding of what's being said here. We have to understand the context, understand what's happening. Let me give it to you in a kind of a Cliff Notes version. The context is simply this. God the Father is showing John, the apostle, a vision. And the vision is of what's going to happen in the future. Back then, the Bible wasn't completed yet, so God, on occasion, would give direct revelation to individuals. And John was one of those individuals. So he gave him a vision of what was going to happen in the future. It's a vision of what can happen in eternity future in the throne room of God. This is what will happen. You have God the Father, we're described here, in his throne room in heaven, and he's sitting on his throne. And the Bible says here that he's encircled around him literally all of heaven. Everyone who's in heaven is circled around the throne in the throne room. And he's using symbolism here. He says four creatures. Well, those four creatures basically represent all of the created creatures that God created. Animals, angels, everybody. That's what that represents. And then it mentions four el- or 24 elders. The 24 elders is symbolic of the church of Jesus Christ. So you have not only everything that God created, but you have the saints, the church, And what he's saying here is everything God has made, whether it's angels, whether it's animals, and everyone who has been saved by his grace, by putting their faith and trust in Christ, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus the Lamb, if you have trusted the gospel, if you choose to follow Jesus every day of your life, you know what? You're in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. You will be there one day. You're going to see what we're going to talk about firsthand. Now, so I want you to kind of pay attention. So when it actually happens, you can remember and say, yeah, that crazy pastor at Grace Bible Church, he said this was going to happen. Not that I have some vision. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, right? So you have a throne room and you have everyone circled around and God the Father is sitting in his throne, and he has a scroll in his hand, not just in any hand. It says in the right hand, which is the hand of authority, the hand of power. And it's sealed, it tells us, with seven seals. Seven seals. In the Bible, the number seven is, is it depicts perfection. It depicts completion. And what this is saying is, written upon the scroll are the words of God. And those words are complete. They are absolutely perfect. So much so, it says that it fills up the front and the back. There's nowhere else to add anything else because God's word is completely perfect. It's complete. There's nothing else that can be put on this scroll. And the question is, what's on the scroll? 
what's on the scroll? The scroll basically is the deed to the universe. Think about it. It's, it's the one who says, this is mine. This is mine. And this is what is going to happen. Written on the scroll is everything that has transpired in the past and everything that is going to happen in the future. The fate of every human being who has ever lived and what is going to happen to all of creation and to all of heaven, that is written on this scroll. And it's in the right hand of God the Father. You remember back in the book of Genesis, probably from Sunday school time, when God created human beings, what did he create them for? He created them to what? Inhabit the earth, it tells us, to multiply, right? And then to what? To have dominion over the earth. You remember that? That's what God's purpose was for us here. But what happened? Satan came, (laughs) the enemy, the arch enemy, the devil, and he messed everything up. Messed everything up. Satan comes in Genesis chapter 3, and he, what does he do? He usurps the authority of man. See, Adam and Eve had dominion over everything. And Satan came, and he basically tempted them. And they fell. He lured them into sin. And in essence, he, he steals or he takes authority away from man. And if you question that, the Bible says that Satan is the one who is over the earth at this point in time. That's why Jesus called him the what? The ruler of this earth. The ruler of the world. Paul referred to him as the God of this age. He's the prince of the power of this age. But written on this scroll is what is going to happen. Written on the scroll is how God is going to make right that wrong. How he is going to exact redemption. All the promises that he has made to his people through his word. And the scroll recites and shows how he is going to have his retribution on sin, on Satan, on the grave, on hell, on death. It's in the scroll. And it's in the right hand of God. And the Bible says that nothing, nothing can be taken out of the hand of God. God is all-powerful. The Bible says that nothing can be taken out of the hand of God, let alone the right hand of God. But here we see someone who's going to come and take it. Because he is God as well. He is God as well. You have this scroll upon which is describing the retribution of all that is evil. And then the redemption of God's promises and his people. Everything is written on this scroll. And John says... Basically, nothing can happen until this scroll is open. This is the vision that God has given him. And these seals, these seven seals have to be broken. But it takes someone of authority to break them and open the scroll. It's kind of like a will. When someone passes away and they leave a will, you know, just because you're a neighbor of the person that died, you can't go over and say, hey, give me the will. (laughs) They won't give it to you. Why? You have no authority. Usually that's where all the lawyers and everybody gets involved, right? But, but for the most part, you have no authority. 
You have to have authority to open up that will and distribute whatever the will says. Usually it's a court or an officer of the court. Only the person who has the authority can open this scroll. So what's happening here? Look at verse 2. John says, and I saw a mighty angel. Mighty angel. A lot of people believe this is Gabriel because that's what his name means, mighty, strong angel. It's probably Gabriel. We don't know. But a mighty angel, it says, proclaiming with a loud voice. In the original language, that's basically means he's really loud. He's really loud. He's speaking loud already, but then he's proclaiming, which ups the decibels even further. And what does he proclaim? He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's what this mighty angel says. Who has the authority? Who can break these seals and open the scroll so that the end of the age and the end of the world and the beginning of eternity in heaven can start for God's people? And retribution can fall on Satan and hell and the grave. Who's worthy to do this? And as... His voice is loud and shouting. All of a sudden, there's a deafening silence in heaven. No one moves. Of all these creatures, no one moves. No one says a word. There's not an angel of heaven. There's not a human of earth. There's not a demon of hell who has this kind of authority. Who is capable? Who is able to break the seal and open the scroll? No one. And what does it say that John begins to do? Verse 4, look at what it says. It says, and I began to weep loudly, John says. Because through direct revelation, he understands what this is about. This is how eternity begins When God and his people are finally together, this is the ushering in of the end of this world and the beginning of redemption and everything. And John said, there's no one to open this scroll. And when it says he wept loudly, when he began to weep loudly, it really means that he wept violently. We've all been around children when they cry, right? You ever seen a little child cry? You know, eh, know, sometimes it's just a whiny cry, right? But sometimes when they're really serious, when they're really upset, what happens? (laughs) They can't even control themselves, right? They can't even breathe. I mean, that's the kind of crying we're talking about. John is horrifically upset because he knows what this means. He's weeping because there's no one worthy or able to open the scroll. And he says in verse 5, look at what it says. And one of the elders said to me, one of the people, one of the representatives from the church said, weep no more. Now, we don't know how this happened. Maybe they went over to John, who's violently weeping in the corner. Maybe they went over to him and whispered in his ear, hey, John, you know, we're in the throne room of God. We're in heaven. There's no weeping here. Or maybe they said loudly, John, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? We're in the presence of God, we're in his throne room. There's no crying in the presence of Jesus. There's no crying in heaven. 
Stop crying, John. Because there is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy. There is one who is the lion and the lamb who has overcome Satan. He has overcome sin. He has overcome the grave. He has defeated death. He is victorious. It's already done. It's completed. Notice it says that he has conquered. Not that he's going to conquer. Not that he's conquering. No, it's a done deal. It is done. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, his last words were what? It is finished. It's over. It's over. There's nothing more that can be done for your salvation than what Christ has done on the cross. So the elder says, hey, wait a minute. No crying in heaven. There is one. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See, some of you need to hear this this morning because you know what? You're living in the pit of life. Things aren't going too well for you. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're in despair. I don't know. God knows. God knows why you're here. You're not here by mistake. Whatever's going on in your life, you can't imagine how God could ever make it right. You just can't fathom it. Well, I'm telling you here this morning, that's why we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are reminded that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. And one day our sovereign Lord is coming back and he promises, I'm going to make this right. And it's our job and it's our responsibility to, by faith, claim that. And there's no crying. There's no doubting. What is there? There's believing. There's believing. There's rejoicing because of the promise of what he has done and what he will do for us. See, the problem with so many people is they trust in what they do, not in what was done for them. I'm going to give you three reasons why Jesus is worthy as the lamb to receive all worship now and forevermore. First of all, Jesus is worthy of our worship now and forevermore because of who he is. Who he is. Revelation 5, 5, it says, And one of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. John is told about a lion. A lion that has overcome sin. A lion that has overcome Satan. A lion that has overcome and <clears throat> defeated death. This is a lion who is worthy. This is a lion who is able to break the seals and open the scroll. I hope I don't break anybody's heart here this morning. But listen. Disneyland does not have the true Lion King. They just don't. They don't have the true Lion King. Heaven does. Heaven does. This is the Lion King. This is the one who is the true Lion King. See, he's not just Lord of the jungle. He is Lord of the universe, beloved. 
That's why he's saying here, this is why Jesus is described as a lion. It's reminding us of his authority, of his power. It's reminding us of his royal majesty. It's reminding us of his powerful ability to do what he says he is going to do. That he is going to break the power of sin and death and hell and the grave. That he is going to do that and he already has triumphed. He's already conquered them. The lion basically says, what I say goes. That's it. There's no discussion here. His crown will never be relinquished. His plan will never be thwarted. His sovereign roar over the universe will never be silenced. Because he's not just the king of the jungle. He's the king of the universe. Now, I, you know, I'm not the brightest bulb on the block, okay? But I kind of know there's a little difference here between a lion and a lamb. I mean, would you agree with me? Pretty big contrast. Big difference between a lion and a lamb. John hears about a lion. And so he's expecting to turn around and see what? A majestic lion. Just like any of us would. But he turns around and what does he see? It tells us. He says, I saw a lamb. A meek lamb. Now the difference between those two animals is amazing. Between a lion and a lamb. The lion is known as the king of the jungle. But the lamb really, I mean, it's the wimp of the barnyard, right? A lamb? Who wants to be a lamb? I want to be a lion. I mean, you may be leaving here and for lunch or for dinner having lamb for dinner. A lion could have you for dinner. (laughs) See the difference? There's a big difference here. The contrast between a lion and a lamb is so dramatic and it's so massive. And the reason that these two images are used is because of this. It's the difference. It's the contrast. What's he contrasting? He's contrasting the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That's what God is contrasting for us. The difference between those two occurrences of Jesus' coming are massive. Think about it with me just for a moment. The first time he came, he came as a lamb. Would you agree? He came as a lamb. The next time he comes, he will come as a lion. It's going to be a lot different. The first time as a lamb, he came what? He came as a helpless little baby in a manger. Totally dependent upon his parents. Even though he was God. In a human body. He was completely dependent on his parents. The next time he returns, he, the Bible says that he will return as a lion. He will return as sovereign king over all. The first time he came, he didn't even defend himself. The disciples were kind of caught off guard. Wait, you're going to do what? You're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill you? Wait a minute. No, you're, look at all the stuff you've done. Jesus, why would you allow this to happen? He didn't even open his mouth, the Bible said, to defend himself. He never defended himself, though the whole mockery through the whole mockery of the trial and the execution. But when he comes as a lion, beloved, he will be the one. He will be the one that no one will have a defense for. 
When he came as a lamb the first time, he was rejected. He was mocked. He was crucified. He was hung on a cross to die. The next time he comes as a lion, the Bible says this in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, everyone, one day, will confess that true statement that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why there is a lion, and that's why there is a lamb depicted here. So John turns, thinking he's going to see this ferocious lion, and he sees a little lamb. (laughs) So you have a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. That's Jesus. He says it looks as a lamb what does it say? Who's been slain? It's not like the little snowball lamb that we talked about on Good Friday. You know, the nice little year-old lamb that lived with the family for four days and then they had to slaughter it. Now, this lamb looks as though it had been slain. What that means is John turned, he saw the lamb, and when he turned and he saw Jesus, who's depicted as a lamb here, what did he see? He saw scars on his body from his crucifixion. That word slain, by the way, in the original means to slaughter, (laughs) to be butchered. Literally, that's what it means. If you go down to Key Market and you say, hey, I want a rib roast and I want this, what do you do? You're talking to a butcher. You're talking to somebody who cuts up meat. The idea is that John saw the scars that were put on the body of Christ. Someone said the only man-made things in heaven will be the scars on our Lord. That's the only thing that's going to make it to heaven that was made by man, the scars on his body. Well, why would he do that? The Bible says he's giving us a new body, right? One day, those who trust in Christ, one day we will receive a new body, the Bible says. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that day. No more aches and pains. I'm going to have a new body. Surely he could give Jesus a new body. But he doesn't. He doesn't give him a a new body that's just completely without any kind of blemish. He leaves the scars where they are. Why? Listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgression. Speaking of Christ, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, it says, all we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. So God took our sin and he laid it on his son. Verse 7, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
You have a lamb here. You have Jesus here showing his permanent scars. Why? Why is this essential? Because we have and there always will be people who preach salvation by service, salvation through sincerity, or salvation by being good. We have that today. They had it back then. We'll have it in the future. You say, well, what do you mean? What's salvation by sincerity? Salvation by sincerity is when you share the Lord with somebody and you're sharing with them maybe about their need for a Savior and their need for forgiveness from God because of their sin. And they say, well, I I know what I believe. I'm okay. And I believe what I believe with all my heart. Doesn't matter. That's somebody who believes in salvation by sincerity. Or salvation by subtraction is another one. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't chew. And I don't go with girls that do. Because of that, I'm a good guy. Salvation by subtraction. Or salvation by service. Some people say, well, hey, wait a minute. I go to church every week. I read my Bible every morning. Sometimes twice a day. I'm even nice to my neighbors. I serve in the church. What's that? That's salvation by service. See, all those things are good, but not one or all those things will bring you salvation. Because we are saved, our salvation comes by grace. Our salvation comes through the mercy of the Lamb who was sacrificed. Our salvation comes from who? Christ, who was our sin bearer. He bore our sin. All of our sin was poured on him as he hung on that cross. The perfect spotless lamb of God as he hung on the cross, beaten and scourged. In pain and agony. He bore our sin. God put on him, even though he had never committed one sin, the guilt of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. And Christ took it upon himself willingly. Jesus paid for all of our sin, for all the people who would ever put their faith in Christ for salvation. And guess what? It's paid in full. It's not a partial payment. It's not a down payment. It's paid in full. I mean, it'd be a blessing if someone bought you a car, right? And they said, hey, I bought you a car. You can go down and pick it up. Oh, okay. And you get there thinking, wow, you got this brand new car. And you walk in, you say, hey, can I have the keys to my new car? It's parked out front. Oh, yeah, you just got to sign this paper. What paper? Well, it's a loan. (laughs) Well, well, wait a minute. My friend said he bought me this car. Oh, that's, yeah, I think he put $1,000 down. But, I mean, you're still going to owe (laughs) $35,000. That would not be something that's paid in full. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. It will not be because of what you did. It will not be because you are nice. It will not be because you went to church. It will not be because you preached a sermon. It will not be because of anything that you have done, but that you have received it by God's grace through the sacrifice, through the torment, through the butchering of the Lamb of God on the cross. 
In every moment of eternity, when we are in heaven, every time our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, our Savior, we will be reminded by the scars in his hands, we didn't do anything to earn this. We are not here because we're a good person or we did this or we did that. We're here because there's Jesus standing there and he's got the scars in his hands showing us what he did for us. He died on a cross. That's why in heaven we even need a constant reminder that it's not in what we do because that's how we're geared. We think somehow we can pull ourselves out of this pit of sin. We'll just go to church more. We'll just pray more. We'll just do this. We'll just do that. It doesn't work that way, beloved. It's God who gives you life. And it has to be received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel is. It's not a gospel of works. The Bible says, lest any man should boast... It is by the grace of God. And we have the scarred hands of Jesus Christ himself to remind us that we didn't do this. He did it for us. Isaiah 49 paints a beautiful picture of this. He says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God says that about us. That he has engraved our names on the palms of his hands hands. Now, back in ancient times, they would understand this because servants would have the names of their masters tattooed on them. If you were a servant or a slave, the master would put his name on you, designating that you're his servant. But never in the history of ancient days was a servant's name put on the body or engraved on the body of a master. It was always the master's name on the servant. But here it's just the opposite. God says, I've engraved your name on me. Why? Because I am devoted to you forever. Forever. It's not dependent on how good you are. It's not dependent on how many times you go to church. If you have trusted in the sacrifice of my son, the Lamb of God, I am devoted to you forever. But it's not just that. It's not that you're just saved by grace. And I want you to see this in love, because for all of eternity, we will be reminded of the humble, sacrificial, unbelievable love of Christ every time we see those scars on Christ. We'll see the message, this is how much I love you. This is how much I was willing to give you my life. The master is completely devoted to the servant How much more should we as servants be devoted to our master, beloved? So Jesus is worthy of our worship because of who he is. He's the lion and he's the lamb. Secondly, where he is. Jesus is worthy of our worship because of where he is now and forevermore. Verse 6, Revelation 5, it says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures, he's painting a picture here, and among the elders, I saw a lamb. What's it say the lamb's doing? Standing. This lamb, this slain lamb, this scarred lamb is standing, it says. What does that mean? Remember, I said that the word slain means to be slaughtered. If you had a lamb in your home and you were going to slaughter that lamb for Resurrection Sunday dinner, you would take it to a butcher 
And the butcher would kill the lamb, and he'd cut up the meat, and you'd go home and you'd eat the meat. If I came over to your house for Sunday dinner, and there's Bambi roaming around the front yard, maybe he's missing a leg, but he's still roaming around, he wouldn't have been slain. He wouldn't have been slaughtered. He would have been maimed. See, Jesus died. And it says here that he, this lamb who's depicting Jesus, is standing. He's not laying down. He's not dead. He's not looking like death warmed over. He is standing. What do you have? You have a resurrected lamb. It's the depiction of our living Lord, the resurrected Savior. Yes, he has these scars to remind us of what he's done for us. But you know what? He is alive forevermore. The whole chapter is about the centrality of Christ. He is standing in the throne room of the living God. And everything, everyone is focused on him. You have many people today who say, well, you know what? Jesus wasn't God. He, he's not really deity. He's not really God. And yet over and over and over throughout Scripture, you have a picture of Jesus being God. And you say, well, where do you see this here? As I said before, the Bible indicates that nothing can be taken out of God's hand. Nothing. God is all-powerful. And yet this one, Jesus, the Lamb of God, goes, it tells us, and he takes something out of God's hand. Not just any hand, his right hand. The strong hand is the imagery of God the Father. I mean, do you know what that means? That means that God the Son takes from God the Father. Only God can take from God. Only God can take from God. And so he says in verses 6 and 7, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You say, what in the world is this talking about? And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Remember, this is a lot of symbolism. What do horns represent? Quickly, they represent power. What do eyes represent? Eyes represent wisdom. Because you can see and you can penetrate and you can understand if you have sight. What do the spirits represent? The seven spirits, remember seven? What's the seven? It's the, the, the number of completion, of perfection. What this is saying to us, beloved, he's saying that Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who has complete power, has perfect wisdom and complete presence. He's saying he is the one who is worthy. He is the one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is saying the lamb who has the attributes of God. Why? Because he is God. He is God. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus was created by God and that he's equal to you as one of God's creation. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that he is God who came out of heaven and he came down so that one day we can leave this earth. He became like us so that one day we could become like him. He is God, God in the flesh. Verse 8, and it says, And when he had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures, all the angels, the animals, everything, the 24 elders, that's the church. What did they do? It says they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What he is saying here is, is all of heaven, when they realize, whoa, there is someone who's worthy. What happens? It says they fell down before the lamb. When Jesus goes over and he takes this scroll out of the right hand of God, he says, I can take it. I am worthy. I am the one who has the authority to break these seals. I am going to open this scroll. I am going to begin all eternity. I am going to usher in the end of the age. I am going to start the redemption of mankind. I am going to exact all of retribution on Satan, on sin, on hell, on death, on the grave. I can do it. Can you imagine that deafening silence is all of a sudden shattered by complete jubilation. Heaven goes berserk. It's begun. The beginning of the end. And everyone who is there is so excited. I mean, it's so exciting. You know, even if you're one of the frozen chosen and wants to make you kind of stand up and shout hallelujah. Amen? Amen. I mean, you have never heard something so loud in your life when you hear this. You've never been a part of something so excited than to be there in that moment when the Lamb of God takes the scroll and says, let the party begin. The uproar is incredible. I mean, as a musician, that's why worship should be a little loudy, a little rowdy, a little loud. You know, I'm constantly hearing people, oh, the music's too loud. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven for all eternity? I get it. You don't want it to be distracting. You don't want it to be overbearing. You have to worship with reverence. We understand that. There's nothing wrong with putting your hands together. There's nothing wrong with shouting Hallelujah. I mean, some of us, I believe, think that rigor mortis and reverence are the same thing. They're not. You can dance before the Lord and be reverent. They did it in the Bible. You can lift your hands and be reverent. You can clap and be reverent. I'm telling you, when this happens, worship will have never been at such a fever pitch. And if you know Christ, you're going to be there. I don't know about you, but I'm excited. He says at the end of this in verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, beloved. And you're going to serve God and reign forever. Always cracks me up when the people come to the door. Will you sign the petition to save the trees? No. Why not? Because it's all going to burn anyway. It's going to burn up. There's a new one coming. What are you talking about? They usually don't come back, which is my plan. But See, here's the problem today. A lot of people don't understand what the Bible says. When they think of heaven, what do they think of? Boring. 
You're going to be laying around on a puffy cloud in your bathrobe strumming some harp. Twing. Yeah, there goes 10,000 here. Oh, I got another 10,000. Twing. That's not how Bible depicts heaven. That's a lie. He says we're going to be serving God in the kingdom, and then we're going to be reigning on earth. That's kind of exciting. The Bible says that God has prepared heaven for us. He's prepared it with places to go, things to do, people to see. So much so that it's going to take all eternity. I remember when I was, I think it was 12, my sister took us cross country and we ended up down in L.A. and we went to Disneyland. That's back when they had to eat e-tickets and all the, you know, some of you remember that. You had coupons. You had to, you, and I remember, man, just being so enthralled. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And being the weird person I am, the thing that I liked the most, the Hall of Presidents. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln gets up. I thought, oh, my God. I was just moved to tears through that. I still am. As a matter of fact, it is, it's bizarre. Is he really talking? Is that really him? <laughs> yeah, thinking. You know, I mean, I was 12. Come on. When I was a youth pastor, we used to go to Disneyland maybe twice a year. Christian concerts, Friday night, Saturday nights, they have Christian concerts. You go, you take the whole youth group. I mean, if you want to go to Disneyland, let me know. I can get you through the whole, the whole place in, in about two and a half hours. And we'll see the essential stuff, everything else. Doesn't matter. Right? It, it kind of grows. You're kind of weary of it after a while. Just, you can only go through this stuff so many times. It's never going to be that way in heaven. We're never going to run out of things to do. It's going to take all of eternity to do what God has planned for us. In heaven, it will take forever. And we're never going to say, uh, I'm bored. No, not in heaven. Don't buy into the thinking that some people say today. You know what? You go to heaven for the climate, but you go to hell for the company. That's not true. That's not true. They think, yeah, I'll go to hell and have a big party with my friends. No, the Bible describes hell as utter darkness for all eternity. The only presence of God you'll know in hell my friend, is his wrath. His wrath for all eternity. I'm telling you, you want to go to heaven for both. (laughs) Well, here's the last thing we'll be done. Not only who he is, where he is, but Jesus is worthy of our worship now and forevermore because what he has. Revelation 5, 11 and 12, he says, I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. That just means a lot. (laughs) Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive. Look at what it says. And notice it has four words here. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Seven words. Remember what I talked about? Seven, completion, perfection. It says that we will sing a new song in heaven. Verse 9. So if you're stuck on just the old songs, you know, I, I only sing the hymns. I only sing stuff that from the 1600s or what. You better change your tune because you're going to heaven and they're going to be singing new songs there. Now, I love the hymns, don't get me wrong. But I also love some of the newer stuff if it's biblically based. So we have to remember that. 
We will fall at his feet, the Bible says, in heaven, and we will throw our crowns at his feet. These seven words describe perfection and completion of our Redeemer. He gets the perfect reward. He gets it all because he deserves it all. He is the perfect redeemer. Therefore, he earned and he deserves the perfect reward. And that is everything. Everything. That's what it takes. You stand before God. You can't say, well, I'm going to give you a part of my life. No. It's 100% or nothing. I've been really praying that Today would be a day when there are people who are gathered here that maybe they think they're believers. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm not here to sick Jesus on you. I want you to be sure. Because as sure as I'm standing here, beloved, this day will come. This will come. I don't want you to be left behind. There are people who come year after year, week after week. They think... They have what God has offered to them, but they haven't been transformed. I mean, if, if you're honest and you look at your own life, you know that. You know that. I mean, you might be religious, but you're not redeemed. You haven't been transformed by the blood of Christ, by His Spirit. You haven't given your life your love, your adoration, your affection, your attention to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You haven't done that. Maybe you're going through the motions. Well, I've been praying. I've been praying for you. Not in a judgmental way. But I've been praying that God, through His mercy, through His Spirit, Maybe today he would open your eyes to his truth. He would open your eyes to see your need of a Savior. Because you know when you look in your own heart as you sit here today, if you died right now, you would not be around this throne in the future. You would not be in the throne room of God. This isn't meant, once again, to be judgmental. But you know that in your own heart. See, I'm I'm trying to give you a call to action, asking that you make sure. Have you believed? Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin to the Savior? And does your life evidence that? That you're willing to set everything aside and worship Him and Him alone, now and forevermore, the Lion who is the Lamb, He came the first time to be sacrificed for you. The next time he will come, beloved, as a lion. And he will reign forevermore. If you do not come to him as when he's a lamb, you don't want to meet him as a lion. Because there's no hope. There's no hope at that point. See, Jesus is not just a good way to heaven. He's not, oh, the best way to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. The only way. 
And he says, if you want to be with your Father God creator, you have to go through me. This is what Jesus says. There's only one who is worthy. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. Not one of many ways. I am the way. There are a lot of people and there are a lot of things who want and they are willing to be your God. A lot of things. But there is only one, one who is worthy. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The lamb-like lion and the lion-like lamb. He, he alone is worthy. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be directed in a way that would help us to look at our own hearts, not the heart of the neighbor next to us, just in the quietness of this moment. Father, we know whether we have trusted you or not for our salvation. We know whether or not you have forgiven us of our sin and you've made a difference in our life. For many here, that's true. But I I can't help but believe that maybe there's some here who has not made that commitment, has not cried out to you and admitted, yeah, you know what, I do some wrong things. I do some bad things. I sin. If you've ever told a lie, you've sinned. If you've ever taken thing, ir- anything irrespective of its value that's not yours, you've stolen something, that's a sin. If you've ever used God's name in vain, you've blasphemed the name of God, God calls that sin. You don't want to die trying to bear your own sin. Because it's not going to work. And that's why God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth to die, to live and to die, and to be raised on the third day for the forgiveness of our sin. So if you're here today and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in, in, in God, I pray that you, you would be willing, that God would draw you, that if you feel a little uneasy right now, that's God working on your heart. That you would yield yourself to him. That you would say, Lord, it doesn't have to be a complex prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I blew it. Blow it every day. I need your forgiveness. That's a prayer. If it's prayed from a sincere heart, God will answer every time. And so, Father, we pray today that you would do your work in the hearts of your people. We thank you for this day that we can celebrate the resurrected Lord. We pray for our time across the way as we fellowship and have food together, that you would bless the food to our bodies. And we pray, Lord, as we close with a song, that you would just bless this day as we spend it probably with family and friends. But, Lord, even if there's those who don't have anybody to spend this day with, Lord, we know that you're there with them. They have your presence with them if they want it. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.